The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Kind of mixed uh, open uh, here for the uh, first 45 minutes or so of trading here. Looks like folks are kind of waiting on some of the big eco data. It's going to get a little sense of kind of how this market's performing, how it may discount some of this eco data we will get this week, most notably CPI data as well as uh, PPI as well. Cameron Christ, macro strategist for Bloomberg News and Gina Martin Adams, uh, chief um, uh, equity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. They both join us here. We're going to round table this what thing. What an insane like round table. I know. I Holy mean, you get a couple of heavyweights Someone there. should record this. Yeah, I think we do that on a daily basis. Oh. Then we pot it, as kids say. All right, Cameron, um, we got a lot of eco data here today. What are you going to be looking for? What do you think, I guess more importantly, what do you think your Federal Reserve is going to be looking for? Well, I mean, obviously the CPI is the, the highlight of the, uh, of the week. Uh, you know, they've made it pretty clear that they need to see more than one or two friendly prints to switch, uh, switch course. Um, but last month we didn't even get a friendly print. So uh, it, it would be the first step on, a, on the journey. It could be the, sort of the beginning of the end of the cycle if we start to see some significant downside prints in CPI. But uh, as this year has taught us, it is very, very costly to try to preempt that. So, Gina, what does an investor do here? I mean, um, it seems like every data point out backs up the Fed actually doing what they say, which is shocking to the markets. Mm -hmm. And then um, it turns out uh, when we get a drop in inflation, at least according to um, a bunch of research on the street, it's going to be horrible for earnings. Well, I think that remains to be seen for a start. Um, inflation is usually a lagging indicator of growth. Inflation has been in a bizarre position this year relative to the past 20 years. So any forecasters that really have a strong sense of, of what inflation is doing probably would, would use a model that is not accurately going to forecast the reality over the next couple of quarters. I think this is sort of the reality of the earnings stream is that inflation has been a big pain point for earnings. Revenues have been growing, but margins have been contracting amid the rising input cost pressure, even though companies have been able to pass on some price increases. So we might be somewhat surprised by the degree to which a drop in inflation can actually soothe some of those margin, press margin pressures going forward. And frankly, that is not what's happened for the last 20 years. What's happened for the last 20 years is company earnings weakness does not come about because inflation is too fast. It comes out about because we see a demand, a demand drop, right? And so I think that we've got this really mass confusion going on with respect to the earnings stream. Um, also, a lot of the earnings strength has come from energy specifically. Energy is very tied not just to inflation, the inflation output, outlook, but what's happening with the input price, right? And are oil prices actually falling now? Are 
input prices actually falling in the energy space is a big question mark for the outlook. So I would characterize the, the current outlook as sort of earnings confusion. Um, that earnings confusion probably persists into the next quarter, but companies can do a lot to clear up that earnings confusion, and that's what we'll be looking for well, in the upcoming earnings season. I mean, today, for example, UBS said Ford profit will drop 50% this year. That sounds less like confusion and just like <laughs> a, a huge loss, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, we would be remiss not to note that what's been happening in the auto space has also been completely contrary to historical experience over a cycle. We can't get cars. Cars aren't coming into the United States. They're going to start coming into the United States at a point in time where interest rates are increasing. This is just completely bizarre and a bizarre experience in the earnings stream. So do you really want to take a Ford example as indicative of what's going to happen for tech companies, healthcare companies, consumer companies at large? I mean, I think this is what I, I mean by, infl by inflation and earnings confusion. This is a very, very difficult point to take any individual companies as a representative of what's going to happen for the market at large. And that's been the case for much of 2022. All right. Well, how about let's take Mike Wilson's scenario. point on, you know, he says when inflation comes down, um, the parts that are going to remain resilient are shelter, wages and some services, and then goods will continue to decelerate. And that's not a constructive picture for the S&P 500. It's definitely not a constructive picture for the goods centric industries within the S&P 500. Completely agree with that scenario. Hey, Cameron. But oh, go good-centric consumer companies generally indicative of what's going to happen at the market at large is my point of contention with that thesis. Mm. Hey, Cameron. So, I mean, I guess the issue is, do we have a risk, material risk this week of being like really negatively surprised that inflation comes in really hot? Of course. I mean, I, w I would say that any analysis that's looking at the last 20 or 30 years of inflation and what it means for earnings isn't particularly useful because this is a completely different inflation regime um, than, than we've had. Uh, you know, central bankers, Alan Greenspan, kind of defined price stability in, I think, 1996. Is that level of inflation that doesn't materially impact the decisions of consumers and businesses in the economy? And that's more or less been the case um, from the late 80s. Uh, really through until last year. Um, so this is a very different scenario to what we've experienced in the 90s uh, and the noughties and the, and the teens uh, on the one hand. And on the other hand, um, referencing demand, I mean, the Fed's stated intention is to reduce demand, to bring right. it into supply. Um, I mean, they, haven't, they couldn't be any more clear on what they're trying to accomplish. Yep, um, absolutely. Is that, in the, is that in the price of the stock market? I think that's that's really, really debatable. Certainly, it is not embedded in the level of earnings expectations, uh, I think, over the next uh, over the next few years. And right. if you look at market valuations based right. on the on the present value of those future earnings expectations, the market is not yep. cheap. All right, Cameron, great stuff. Cameron Christ, macro strategist, Bloomberg News, Gina Martin Adams, uh, Bloomberg uh, Intelligence uh, Equity Strategist. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.
Let's get over right now to Chris Beals. He's the CEO of Weed Maps. It's NASDAQ listed. The ticker is M-A-P-S. And um, to me, this seems like a growth story. Chris, we just got, you know, uh, legal weed starting to sell around New York. Um, not entirely legally yet, but I guess uh, people will use your app to find a place where they can uh, safely and securely buy weed and, um, you know, get reliable quality. Is that is that the case? Yeah, well, actually, one step further, it's sort of what we provide is sort of like Amazon or DoorDash for cannabis. So it lets retailers and brands showcase their products and, and enable online ordering. Uh, and then we have a bunch of software that helps them do delivery, post-order follow-up, CRM, that sort of thing. But yeah, the idea is to take something that's traditionally been scary, hard to understand, and make it easy to shop for consumers online. So, you know, how many states are you active in? Can you get delivery service? I mean, delivery service has been the only way to get weed in New York for like 30 years. But can you actually get legal delivery service now here? Yeah. So when, and this varies from state to state, some states only allow in-store pickup, uh, that sort of thing. But in New York, they will allow delivery. So you'll be able to uh, order on Weed Maps on the app on your phone, put stuff in a cart, check You out. will be able to, or you are able to? You will be able to when adult use open. So right now it's just medical. So you could right now just for medical shops, if you have a medical card, but uh, when adult use these dispensaries that can sell you know, for basically recreational open up, you'll be able to get order on the phone and get delivery right to your door. Chris, are you uh, active in states that have been open for uh, recreational cannabis like Colorado, for example? And if so, kind of what's your experience been? Yeah, so so we're, we're ubiquitous. We're in okay. all 37 states that have uh, cannabis legalization. We're actually a 14-year-old company. We were started out in California, and we're, uh, we operate internationally in seven uh, international jurisdictions at this point as well. So, yeah, we're in Colorado. Uh, interestingly enough, Colorado has very limited delivery, despite what people might think. Uh, they're really kind of just rolling out pilots for it. Um, but we see we operate in all these different states and we see very big differences in how the businesses operate and our software has to deal with uh, the different rules and compliance regulations. Um, and then the way consumer shop varies a lot. I think New York will uh, be very similar in terms of consumer shopping habits to California, which makes sense because New York's been buying California cannabis for the last 30 years. So, I mean, my experience is. When I was a kid, you know, we you'd have a delivery guy come and meet you, or come to your door, you'd get in his car, or whatever. But now that these dispensaries are opening up, it's too much fun to go there. Why would I want to get delivery? <laughs> it, it, going to Empire is like going to the Dylan's candy store of weed. Um, <laughs> is that going to wear off? Am I going to get tired of that and want to go for delivery later on? Well, so the thing is, is eventually for a lot of people when they become regular cannabis consumers and look, we're seeing a lot of that people who are substituting uh, cannabis for alcohol as a healthier alternative. You know what you want or you want to you don't want to go through the hassle of going to the dispensary and at dispensaries, the lines can be long and it can be you know a bit confusing. But the other big use case we're seeing in mature states, the average cannabis dispensary has over a thousand SKUs. And so we see a lot of people pulling out weed maps when they're in the store just to go through and understand what are all these different products. Cause you know, to go from that, that guy saying, Hey, come get in my car. He only has what he can carry in his backpack to a dispensary. Where you got over a thousand different things. And you look at segments like 
concentrates and all these new types of concentrates. You look at edibles, there's a huge growth in the beverage segment. How do you as a consumer make sense of all of that? I mean, and a lot of times the dispensary doesn't even fully understand everything because the, the brand explosion is just in the early innings right now and it's accelerating. By the way, do you have a team of people reviewing these products or do you rely on you know written in reviews from consumers? So what we do is we rely on written in reviews from verified purchasers. So people who have, it's, it's, uh, I have to be careful. I say this because Amazon, the Amazon review systems fallen under a lot of, I think, rightful criticism. But what we do is we look at consumers uh, who have purchased online through weed maps, through the marketplace, and then say, give us feedback, give us reviews on uh, things like how it clinically affected you. How was your store experience? How was the delivery experience? And there's other things we can do. We do have a content and, and learning part of the site to learn about strains, to learn about new products, where we do have expert reviewers and commentators, and mm -hmm. we can pull some of that across. The other thing is um, a lot of what we do is we have one of the largest brand catalogs out there. So many times the brands will write, they'll provide the images, uh, they they'll provide the, the descriptions. And more than that, yep. the ascribed clinical effect. And then yep. we syndicate that through all the retailers who carry those branded products. Chris, as far as the stock, what is going on? You're trading for less than sales, you know, three times earnings right now. These are not numbers that we typically see, even for companies that are distressed. Yeah, and on top of that, we've been profitable for essentially our entire history. Uh, we, were, we were effectively bootstrapped until we went public. Uh, you know, look, I think what you see, it's, it's frustrating to me. And, and I think it's one of those reminders of as a CEO, you have to control what you can control, which is us growing adoption of the marketplace and that. But I think partially what you're seeing is, is a reflection of stigma. There's still a lot of institutional investors who won't invest in the sector, even for a NASDAQ listed uh, technology ancillary provider like maps. Uh, and, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, the, the market is a factor of supply and demand. And on the demand side, uh, there's just far too many funds who are reluctant to invest in the cannabis sector, despite the fact that some people estimate this is going to be a hundred billion dollar industry at the end of this decade. Um, so, you know, we're out there trying to educate people, make them understand that there's very deep moats around this business uh, in terms of the regulatory requirements, uh, the data science you have to do. You know, we're solving problems that, frankly, GoPuff and a bunch of other online marketplaces haven't solved right. because and we need to. We, yeah, we can't touch the actual cannabis product, nor do we ever want to. So, but we had President Biden recently kind of, you know, say, you know, he's going to expunge federal marijuana uh, convictions. I mean, that had to be a step in the right direction. Yeah, it, look, I think there's a lot of twists and turns to that because I think it is potentially less impactful than people think on the pardon side because there aren't a lot of federal prisoners who are under right. federal custody for simple possession. A lot of it's trafficking or they'll tack on other charges to get a plea. But the, the promise to reschedule, if they follow through on that, could meaningfully change things. Mm. Um, you know, when we've tried to sponsor scientific research on cannabis, those researchers have, in some cases, gotten threats to have their um, National Science Foundation or NIH grant funding pulled because they're doing cannabis research. Right. So the rescheduling would help there. But, right. but the biggest thing that I think people are missing is, is it's a stigma reduction. When you right. look at why yeah. funds aren't investing in cannabis names, right. it's not because they can't, it's a stigma thing. When you sure. look at why major credit card providers don't bank or yeah, don't provide credit yep. for financial side, it's okay. that. All right, Chris, great stuff. Chris Beals, CEO of Weed Maps on the cannabis business. 
want to talk technology here, and I want to talk the U.S.-China supply chain, because, boy, we found out at the beginning of the pandemic that it is not good to be over-reliant on one source of stuff, and like we saw it in the technology space with uh, chips. And so Wu Jinho, which, by the way, is a, my favorite name on Wall Street, Wu Jinho is a senior technology analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's got a research report out uh, entitled Untangling U.S.-China Tech Supply Chain Issues. He says it's difficult but doable. Wu Jin, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about kind of what we've learned over the last two and a half, three years about that supply chain uh, reliance on China and, and maybe how some of the technology companies are trying to untangle that. Right. Uh, thanks for having me on, Paul. So um, I, it, it's clear uh, of, of, over the past couple of years that uh, China is a main supplier, not only for, for uh, chips, but more importantly, uh, electronics manufacturing. If, if, uh, in our research report uh, that, that I worked with our Asia uh, Bloomberg TMT colleagues, is, is that roughly 70% of all of the electronics manufacturing is sourced out of China. And it kind of makes sense, right? Uh, over the years, manufacturing shifted over from uh, U.S. and Mexico and, and, it, and moved over to China uh, uh, because of economies of scales, because uh, we're, we are very focused on margin. And, and trying to untangle that is going to be uh, uh, quite a task. We also have Brendan Murray with us. Uh, he is the Bloomberg trade czar out of Atlanta. Is that right? Are you in Atlanta, Brendan? Uh, I'm in London. Oh, in London. Sorry. Um, uh, in London. Brendan, what do we know about um, President Biden right now and the rules on chip makers or the rules on technological access by companies in China? Yeah, well, what we know right now is that is that Pre President Biden is trying to make some of those decisions for uh, for for industry rather than uh, you know, it, basically to try to make it more difficult for, for China to, to produce its chips and easier for American companies to, to get these semiconductors that, you know, go in just about, you know, every household appliance that we buy. So that's that's the administration's stance right now. It's, it's you know, some of it's borrowed from the Trump administration to, uh, you know, try to sort of uh, create our own industries here that, you know, many of them migrated away. So, so the tech supply chain's you know, are definitely well embedded uh, in China and elsewhere in Asia, but they they can, they can they can make some progress on them to, uh, with government incentives and 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 uh, and, and penalties, um, uh, you know, against uh, Chinese producers. But what does this? Do? First of all, I thought you were, I mistakenly thought you were in Atlanta because you used to write for the Atlanta Business Chronicle. <laughs> So that was, I guess, a, a while back. But um, what does this mean for the chip industry in China? I mean, is this a huge blow? Um, you know, will it wither away or is it still going to be? I mean, I assume it's the main place that chips are made globally. Yeah, I mean, I think judging by the market reaction in China today to the news from the U.S. Uh, on Friday and through the weekend, you know, investors do expect it to be a, a you know, to, 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 you know, to, to, to cause some, cause some problems for the Chinese producers. Hey, Wooj, you know, I think, you know, at some point during this pandemic, when this, this issue, the supply chain issue as it relates to chips became, you know, really prevalent, everybody was just saying, well, just let's onshore this stuff. And there's been some announcements in the great state of Ohio, in the state of New York, about maybe bringing some of these fabs onshore. Is that really a thing? Is that a solution, or is that just more kind of rhetoric and politics? Well, um, well, 
the, the, the Biden administration is actually putting their money where their mouth is, right? Uh, uh, the $52 billion CHIPS Act is supposed to help um, initiate investment into uh, um, uh, some of these fabs to man- manufacture these um, uh, advanced technology chips, right? So, so they are trying to onshore some of that to to lessen the reliance. Now, now, um, you know, just just to uh, piggyback on um, on Brandon's point, uh, the the one thing I will say is that they're trying to what the U.S. is trying to do with some of the, I guess, re- renewed um, sanctions on China is is to slow down the the manufacture of advanced chips. Now, now the one. China doesn't really make uh, many advanced ships. It's, it's it's mostly Taiwan, and and right. if anything, it's, um, the U.S. is trying to mitigate the the, the reliance on um, on Taiwan on some of these advanced ships because of the geopolitics. Um, these are two issues. Well, the supply chain and chips are two issues that have become conflated and intertwined over the crisis, but. Um, we should keep them separate, I guess, right, Brendan? Because you have a great big story out in the Bloomberg today showing that we could see the supply chain returning to some sense of normalcy. And throughout the story, uh, you talk about the reduction in wait times that ships have outside of harbors. Yeah, we definitely need to make a distinction between tech supply chains and and normal supply chains. You know that uh, they are they are interlinked to some extent, but but tech tech supply chains are are very you know uh, very complex and 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 difficult to replicate uh, in other countries. But but for other things, uh, more basic sort of lower value goods or you know textiles or things that don't require you know lots of uh, you know complicated um, machinery or engineering. Can be can be produced and are being produced and have been shifting out of China for you know many years even before the pandemic, and the U.S. trade war with 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 China. So so that shift has been ongoing, and and we're, and what we're seeing now is uh, you know if you set the tech supply chain aside for a second, we're seeing the demand cooling around around right. uh, Europe and the U.S. in particular. So so we're seeing a lot of that congestion that we saw, you know, that most of this is sort of transportation related as opposed to production related. So some of that is freeing up just because there's there's the demand is coming off, yep. uh, you know, the, the peak, the peak levels that it has seen over the past couple of years. All right, Brendan, great stuff. Really appreciate you, you taking the time. Brendan Murray, trade czar for uh, Bloomberg News based in London and Bloomberg News is all over this global supply chain issue, as is Bloomberg Intelligence Investment Research, Wu Jinho, technology analyst uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. They have a big, big report out on the terminal. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Bond market closed, equity market open. Who's in charge out there? I mean, somebody's got to you know, get it together here. Let's continue our discussion of technology. This time we're going to keep our focus on the chip business because um, a lot of industries depend upon the chip business. You didn't think so until we had this pandemic. Then you're like, oh, yeah, chips are in everything. Mandeep Singh, senior technology analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And we talk about chips. We always like to talk about the auto industry because Matt's truck was stuck in the, somewhere in Mexico because he couldn't get enough chips for, I don't know what, the electric windows. Not just knows, because of that. 
<laughs> Probably some other reasons. But Kevin Tiny, he's got all the answers when it comes to the auto business, senior automotive analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Mandeep, I'm looking, at, again, the Philly Semiconductor Index, the Sox. It's uh, down again today, the lowest since October of 2020. What's going on in the, the chip business? I thought we needed these things. Well, uh, what happened last week was AMD pre-announced, and they said their client segment revenue will be half of uh, what they expected back in August. That's not good. So not a lot of uh, time had passed from their prior guidance. And within two months, they come out and say it will be a billion dollars lower, and most likely that will be the case for the fourth quarter as well. So not just one billion lower for the year, but two billion. And so what that translates into is you know, PC shipments being down almost 50, 60 million. But PCs, I mean, who uses a PC anymore? What, what is this? Is it Motorola? Is it a Nokia PC? I mean, come on, give me a break. <laughs> Chips are used in electric vehicles and cellular telephones other than Nokia. Um, you know, they're used in a million other products besides personal computers. I'm not running DOS. I don't care about PCs. <laughs> so, well, these businesses are much more diversified now than they were five years back. And so AMD does have a data center business. They have gaming business. Gaming is going down as well. So data center is what is holding off well. But guess what? When everything is going down, the cloud guys, the hyperscalers are going to say, okay, why are we spending $30 billion on CapEx, you know, setting up these new servers when the overall demand is going down. So eventually they'll pair back as well. And that's why you see such violent stock reaction. All right, Kevin Tynan, you've been whining, Matt's been whining, all the gearheads have been whining that they can't get their vehicles because there's not enough chips out there. What are the good folks in Detroit telling you? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm more of the opinion, and this is just my opinion, that look, this is the, the constrained output by the manufacturers is a little bit more orchestrated than people like to think. And it's not that there isn't a, a chip shortage. I just think that our, at least our domestic manufacturers are managing it such that it's enabling them to move up market basically in every you know, vehicle architecture they can. So well, hang on, there's not a chip shortage. According to AMD, there's not a, they wish there was a chip shortage, right? Well, in right. specific so, pockets, there is. So for autos, there is still a shortage, but for PCs, Well, which one is a pocket? Is, is autos the pocket and PCs is like the whole enchilada or is PCs a pocket? Autos is much smaller. Autos yeah. is a tiny All right, so Kevin, piece. so the, okay. are you hearing from Detroit and from your other companies that they can in fact get the chips? Well, here's the thing, right? I can get the chips I need for the expensive vehicles that have all the margin for me, <laughs> right? And I can build those, but those darn things that, are, you know, I can sell for $18,000 that I lose money on, I can't find enough chips for those. And then this is what you get is that, you know, everybody talking about affordability and that automakers are missing out because they're going to have an affordability crisis. And I'm saying, they're making the affordability crisis. This is exactly where they want to be. They they want to be selling you $65,000 pickup trucks instead of $18,000 small coupes and sedans. So, you know, the idea that that the automakers will produce more if there were more chips, I think is I think is wrong. I think this is where they want production to be relative to demand. Keep it in balance where it was so want, out of whack. Kevin, for they decades. don't want it to take a year to get your $65,000 pickup truck. They no, don't they, want you to wait two years to get your Bronco, right? But if, but if you do have to wait and you're going to pay over sticker, then we'll take that trade, I guess, for a time being.
But the bottom line is these are two different conversations. I mean, no offense to Eric, but Mandeep and Kevin no, I shouldn't like- necessarily be roundtabled because it, Kevin is worried about at least automakers saying there aren't enough chips. And Mandeep is talking about the companies he covers saying, like, we're swimming in chips. We're I don't know. All chips. I know is chips are in everything, and I didn't even care about a chip until – 2020 and now like i'm looking at looking under every hood every nook and cranny to see if there's a microchip hiding there man deep are they ever gonna is this you know in the great state of ohio in the state of new york they're talking about building fabs is that what you guys call them like the, the manufacturing plants for making these chips is that really going to be a thing because that can move the needle it will and these require you know planning so the by the time you know the ohio fabs come online it'll be 2026 2027 but at the same time the good thing is you know at the geopolitical level you see these tensions and you know the direction where things are headed so eventually you know there will be a point when the us-based fabs will have a higher utilization and you know you can do a lot more here because look these are asset intensive yep. businesses mm. and you require the cap expense so it's great that the government is involved now because right. companies can do it on their own kevin i just literally just 20 seconds here uh is ubs right is ford's profit going to get cut in half next year well my so my question is where is this you know overproduction coming from is it because demand falls through the floor or because they think that automakers once there are chips um, they're just going to accidentally overproduce and it's going to kill affordability and pricing and everything. And I'm saying that's just not how it's going to work. All right. Kevin Tynan, good stuff. He covers uh, the auto industry, which is basically a technology industry with four wheels, I'm convinced. Uh, and then Mandeep Singh, he is a senior tech analyst, uh, covers all things technology for Bloomberg Intelligence. He was actually in studio today, as he is most days. Gold star for, for Mandeep. And thanks to Kevin Tynan. <laughs> Time to go geopolitics right here. We're going to roundtable this uh, series of stories. Dr. Ariel Cohen, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council Eurasia Center, uh, uh, joins us, uh, as well as uh, Roz Matheson. Uh, she covers Bloomberg News, executive editor for Inter- Con- International Government, uh, joins us here to talk about a whole host of geopolitical issues. And let's start with Ukraine, because it seems to have ratcheted up uh, over the weekend. And Dr. Cohen, I'd like to start there. Just give us your thoughts on kind of how you see the situation in Ukraine, maybe the events over the weekend, and and maybe what's next to come. Okay, so on the 8th of October, one day after Putin's 70th birthday, uh, there was an explosion on the Kerch uh, Bridge. That's a bridge that connects the Crimean Peninsula with the mainland, uh, and um, it disrupted the traffic on the bridge, most of the traffic is repaired now. It's a multi-media uh, bridge. It has um, cars, uh, railroad, electricity, and whatnot. Uh, so it's a strategic supply line for the Russian military in the Crimea and in the south of Ukraine in the Kherson region. After that, um, the Russians started bombarding Kiev, uh, the capital of Ukraine, Kharkiv, the second largest city and Lviv, the third largest city, as well as other cities all over Ukraine, primarily taking out the energy infrastructure. So we have reports of electricity being shut down in the major Ukrainian cities. And I don't need to explain to our audience how devastating it is for the civilians. Also, a lot of these uh, missile hits were against uh, civilian 
uh, targets. Yeah, and this a is lot what of, I don't uh, get. I don't understand killed. why, you know, um, taking out the bridge to um, to to block one place where Russian troops come into the theater makes yeah. sense. That's a strategic move. Why right. does Putin then turn around and attack civilians as if that bridge was somehow off limits? Uh, the bridge, of course, is not off limits because uh, the troops, the fuel, the ammo are all going into the theater through that bridge. Um, but uh, attacking civilians, is, the last time I checked, it's a war crime. Yep. And I think one of the responses that Biden administration and the Europeans need to do now is to start identifying who are the war criminals of this war. The Ukrainians are doing some of that work, of course. But I think this needs to be escalated because these people need to understand that as long as this war is continuing, they're piling up what right. may lead to their life uh, sentences in The Hague. Yep. Roz, I want to bring you in. Roz Matheson, executive editor for International Government at Bloomberg News. You know, Roz, there's been, I guess, you know, always a concern in the back of folks' mind that uh, maybe President Putin will get so desperate uh, that the nuclear uh, option may be on the table. What's the latest reporting there? Well, of course, that remains the concern, but he's been threatening that in some shape or form since the war began. The question is, how much is, is his back against the war? The war, how much does the war continue to go against him on the ground? And therefore, what are his options, really, uh, to get any kind of result? I mean, what he's had some success and so, so far is sort of sowing a bit of disarray within Europe more broadly over energy access going into winter, certainly cutting off energy supplies to countries. Um, and as we can see within Ukraine itself, uh, as we we're just hearing, cutting off electricity supply with some of his attacks today. And if you want to splinter Europe further and you want to really push them on the unity question with Ukraine, do you go so far as to use a nuclear weapon uh, in Ukraine to sort of see what the response would be. And that may be the question. Right now, there's no, there's no sense that he's moving nuclear assets toward that, but certainly he's leaving that option open. And that's really putting us in quite a dangerous phase, as you can see today from the extent of the missile attacks that have gone on across Ukraine. He's suffered numerous personal prestige blows. The bridge himself, that was something he drove a truck over uh, when it was opened right. after it was built. So for him, it's personal. Dr. Cohen, what's the likelihood of uh, the Russians using nuclear weapons? Well, this is a $64 billion question, and I'm not talking about the Democratic Party fundraiser at which President Biden found it appropriate to discuss this dire and grave topic. I think the conversation about whether Putin is using tactical nukes or, God forbid, it escalates to strategic nuclear exchange, which it could... Uh, should not be done as a part of a fundraiser. It should be a serious conversation, probably in a speech to the nation by the president. Um, I think the chances are all my contacts in Russia, outside of Russia, in the U.S. government, are saying that the probability of this is growing. We started uh, several months ago talking about, I was talking about 20%. People corrected me and said, no, it's 30 now I think it's over 50%. It's quite possible that Russia will use tactical nu nuclear weapons. And the big question is, of course, what's next? Are we going to respond? How are we going to respond? 
how NATO allies are going to respond. And this, these are the uncharted waters. This is more grave and more dire than the Cuban Missile Crisis, in which nuclear weapons were not used. And, and, and how do Russian allies respond? I mean, Rosalind, let me ask you, um, how has the Russian relationship with China fared throughout this war? And, uh, you know, if we get there, they have to probably reass—the Chinese probably have to reassess their, their support for Putin. We have to imagine that the Chinese president is not particularly happy that this is going on, or certainly that it's dragged on so long, right, as he goes into his own leadership moment in China uh, next week, where he wants to be re-endorsed for a third term because he doesn't need this kind of mess occurring. Does he particularly care about the war in Ukraine? That's up for debate. Um, certainly, um, he's continued to do business with Russia, as of other countries, including India, for example, um, in trading. Uh, but China's been pretty careful not to step too much into the bounds of sanctions, even if they haven't signed up for them. They're being pretty careful. Um, and he, in some ways, he and Russia do still need each other um, as sort of a bulwark against uh, against the West as we move into a really, truly multipolar world, um, that there's vested interest there. Is he probably particularly happy with the way that Vladimir Putin is conducting this? You would, you would think not, and he's probably expressed that privately. Will he publicly criticise Russia? Uh, if, right. they test, if, they do, if they do a nuclear weapon, potentially. But there's still a, a relationship there. All right, some sobering uh, discussion points there. Again, the odds of a nuke uh, from Dr. Cohen are much higher than I would have thought. Dr. Ariel Cohen, Senior Fellow, Atlantic Council, uh, Eurasia Center, and Roz Matheson, Executive Editor for International Government for Bloomberg News with, again, some sobering assessments of the uh, situation in Ukraine. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.